Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley-Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.com.au and ask us. It was over, it said silence is strength and I agree with his point of view. And the greater the length while the greater the strength the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. Hi, this is Dr. Joy Milios here again. Today, we'll be chatting to David, who had a slightly different and not so envious situation arise when COVID struck and his operation prostate cancer surgery was delayed. This left David in a somewhat distressed state and unfortunately, as time went by, a series of events occurred that he's had to come to deal with. Dave talks to us very bravely today about all of his um, experiences, the highs and the lows of his prostate cancer diagnosis and his ongoing battles to deal with the side effects, the need for ongoing treatment, and some of the battles he has faced that are not only unmedical. A diagnosis of prostate cancer can come as quite a shock to an otherwise healthy man, and David fit this bill. The ongoing psychological, mental, and physical impacts on David are shared candidly today, as he so bravely shares with us, are not so easy time with prostate cancer. We welcome David to our Penis Project podcast. Let's join in the conversation with Today we're talking to David Hiscock, um, which, because I'm very immature, that his name totally humours me and you actually don't pronounce it that way, do you? How do you pronounce it? Uh, Hisco. Hisco. I still think Hiscock is way funnier. But anyway, we'll move on from that. So David is a very healthy 56-year-old man who has been extremely active and unfortunately for him was diagnosed with prostate cancer. When were you diagnosed with prostate cancer? Um, February this year. Okay. And then you you're, you were diagnosed in February, but your surgery that you had wasn't until April. So tell us about that. Yeah. Um, originally I was booked in to go in around about the 15th of March. And that was right at the height of, uh, I suppose, COVID manifesting itself to the world. And governments at the time, I think, were scrambling at that point in time. And there were decisions made that, I suppose, impacted all walks of life and and, uh, all parts of the community. And one of those was the, um, I suppose, the delay or the cancellation of elective surgeries. And 
So mine was put on hold like many others. Uh, a, a series of categories were um, communicated, category one through to five, one being, you know, imminent and, uh, you know, like emergencies, so the high-risk ones. And anyone from category two down to five, after that, it was at really at the discretion of your specialist or doctor mm. at the time. I had uh, on a Gleason scale high risk level eight and felt that that was probably high enough to continue to have my surgery, but that uh, that didn't manifest itself that way and, and my surgery was cancelled. Mm. That's And that is why that you ended up... Um having your surgery later on, isn't it? And we'll get into it a bit more detail later, but you've ended up with a, a, a different path to most guys in your age group following surgery, and that may or may not be due to that um, delay, and we can't, we can't categorically say it is or it isn't, but it certainly would have, you probably would have felt a lot better about things if you hadn't have had that delay, do you think? I think so. I, I recently wrote to my uh, federal member and and uh, I suppose in a sort of disappointing way pointed out that by no means am I blaming the delay for the spread of my cancer uh, because of the decisions made um, around COVID, but I'm sure that there'll be that there's a contributing factor there. Yeah. And for anyone who's suffering cancer of any form, I think time is your number one enemy. Yeah. Uh, regardless of the type of treatment and the type of cancer you have, I think it's all about time as well. So mm. for me, any delay at that time was, uh, you know, was critical. And um, so I'm sure in, in some small part, those decisions to delay have probably... Uh, contributed to where I am today. Yeah, and if nothing else, I think that delays like that when you've been diagnosed with a cancer diagnosis particularly is not good for your mental health because I imagine if you have a diagnosis of cancer, you just want it out. And, you know, having any delay that is uncontrollable to you must be frustrating at best. Very. Uh, in fact, the men my mental health has been the bit that I've been worried about myself the most. Yeah. Um, uh, it's. Um, I've also had some other uh, personal issues at home to deal with, um, and that hasn't helped. That's been somewhat of a burden on me as well. And at the same try and time, trying to focus on getting myself healthy and um, and really trying to beat this this cancer. Yeah. So you ended up. You actually ended up having your surgery in April. And normally when we have these conversations, we talk about continence first and then sexual function after, but we're going to mix it up and talk about sexual function first. So I met you for the first time when you were two weeks post-op. And as I said earlier, you're a young, fit, healthy man and you had very good erections and high testosterone levels pre-op and you were still working quite physically, weren't you? And you were going to the gym daily from what I remember. Yep. Yeah. Um, and you had tried for a bit of fun just to see how it was, as most men tell me, that they've tried Viagra and Cialis before and you just had a little bit of a side effect of being a bit hot. Was that it? That's correct, yeah. And um, 
since the operation, even as early as two weeks post-op, you did actually still have a bit of sensation in your penis at night time at that stage. That's correct, yes. And, yes. and that was good. And we talked about the fact that you can have an orgasm even though you couldn't get a full erection that early on. And were you surprised when you realised you could have an orgasm without an erection? Very. In <laughs> fact, I think it's one of the best kept secrets um, <laughs> out there. Um, yeah, I, I honestly believe that you, you had to have that sort of penile function, that erection, and with the stimulation to then have the orgasm. Uh, but as I found to my uh, absolute pleasure that uh, without the erection, the orgasms were even better than before. So this is, I'm constantly looking at telling people when I meet them pre-op, I say, oh, the silver lining in all of this is you're going to go and see a physio like Joe. She's going to get you to do all these pelvic floor exercises and your orgasm might actually be more intense than it's ever been before in your life. And people look at me like I'm crazy. So I'm glad that this is great that you can tell us about that. I remember, I think you were the man who said to me, I felt like my head was going to blow off the first time. (laughs) And can I just chip in here and say, I have had so many men say the same. And even recently I had a 78 year old patient who had actually attended the physio rooms for some issues associated with prostate um, enlargement. And in actual fact, he'd had um, an opportunity to talk to his son because his son had been a patient of mine with prostate cancer surgery and this conversation evolved over a, a barbecue, I think. And uh, his father came along, had a little chat to me. We prescribed some pelvic floor exercises and he came back three weeks later and he said, Joe, my consonance is fixed but something's been happening in the middle of the night. And he said, I'm getting rock hard. And it's been 30 years since it's been like that. Is it possible that the pelvic floor exercises have actually done that? And I said, yep. Um, we do know from research that three sets of pelvic floor exercise a day actually help improve the local blood flow. So the little fast twitch nuts to guts exercises are responsible for the orgasm. And if we actually train those, then we can actually get improvement. And yeah, percentage-wise, it's only about 10% that get increased orgasm. But that research is pretty old. And I think if we... Uh, actually asked men more uh, in recent times after things like the nerve sparing surgery has been a bit more advanced, we'd, we'd see that it's actually a lot better. Well, so anecdotally, awesome. yeah. I think, you know, speaking to men every day about this, I think that more men have improved orgasms than they don't. And I also think that until I studied sexology, I had no idea that you could have an orgasm either without an erection, you know. So, But when you think about it logically, women, most women don't have you know, we don't have like ejaculate. We don't have a massively visual. We do have uh, clitoral tissue gets erect, but we still have orgasms. So it does make sense when you think about it that way. Mm. It's just unusual. So, but you weren't happy because you're a bit of a high achiever just with having amazing erections, (laughs) amazing orgasms. So you wanted amazing erections to go with it. So you decided that you would go down the route of injectables because you had had a bad experience with uh, medication before oral tablets because you didn't feel that great when you tried it yeah Is that that's, right? that's correct yeah so yeah. we then taught you how to do the injections now what did you think when this crazy lady first told you how about if we stick a needle in it and see what happens uh, the thought of it just made my eyes water <laughs> until you told me in fact you can't feel anything yeah but you were strange you actually believed me i did actually believe you <laughs> and I, so uh and yeah i was uh um, I suppose pleasantly surprised that um, it was quite painless and with uh, 
I suppose, a great outcome at, at, uh, at the other end. So Great. And so with from the very outset, if I remember correctly with you, you actually did really well with the injections. You didn't have too much trouble, did you? And you had one issue where it lasted a bit long and then you kind of got it, it was all good after that. Is that right? A couple, actually. There was one that lasted probably around 10 or 12 hours. Right. And um, that is a very painful experience. So <laughs> for any... Any guy who thinks, you know, he wants to keep it up there for the ladies all night, trust me. Uh, Not good. You know, maybe an hour tops. <laughs> and after that, you really do need to rest it because... Um, Being a heterosexual female any longer than an hour is not wanted. So <laughs> whether you have one partner, two partners, or however many you, you think you can pleasure, having an erection for that length of time is a, an uncomfortable uh, proposition. And Yeah. And the second time, um, uh, yeah, I was uh, in a lot of pain the second time. And, and I think that was the time that I'd been in touch with yourself yeah. on what's the best way to uh, to reduce this. So I think some uh, uh, Sudafed yes, and, that's uh, right. and some exercise. exercise. And before, not too much longer, the, uh, yeah, the, the erection sort of uh, dissipated. So... I was rather relieved by that. And so since that time, you've been using, we've got, we've tweaked the dose and um, because for anyone listening that doesn't know about this, the dose is actually compounded specifically for every individual. So because it's impossible to see what everyone's response is going to be. So it does take a bit of tweaking, but now you know what the dose is and it's working well. Yeah, I've played around with the, uh, you know, the, the, the milliliter levels uh, in the syringe mm-hmm. and worked out even the, what time of day that I take it, whether I have more or less, yeah. and also how I'm feeling. So I've actually worked that out. Yeah. Um, so often, do you find that you need less in the morning because usually your testosterone levels are higher in the morning, so you often need a less dose if it's a morning one? True. However, I put more in in the morning because I know that the erection can be dissipated quite quickly because I'll be active and up and about yeah, okay. thereafter, where in the evening I actually put in less. Because you're going to go to sleep. Because I'm going to go to sleep. So I've worked out what works for me Perfect. With re- re- as, as a part of the recovery as much as part of the, uh, the actual activity itself. Yeah, and there's also um, quite a few different medications you can include in the mix. And so if you find someone who's theirs is staying up too long, you can reduce, you can tweak it quite a lot. So um, that's great. I think that's really good. And then, uh, so you're good at the moment. You're just cruising along with, from your erectile function point of view, aren't you? And except you did mention that your orgasms aren't as good since you've changed treatment. So how about, we'll let Joe talk to you about what extra treatment you're on now, and then we'll go back to that. Okay, so um, Dave and I had a, another follow-up appointment this morning, and um, since our last meeting a few weeks ago, Davey's actually had to start some new treatment to try and help with the fact that the PSA following your surgery is not uh, undetectable. So just have a bit of a chat to us about what, what your PSA levels were looking like and what next steps you had to take to, to sort of address that issue. Yeah, so after my surgery, typically there's a six to eight week wait before retesting your PSA level. Correct, yeah. So without the prostate the expectation is your PSA after that period of time should be zero or undetectable levels yeah so but mine was uh, at that time 
not high. It was like 0.4 or something along, along those lines. Uh, and then waited a couple more weeks after that, and I still had a PSA reading. So subsequently to that, I had more scans. Um, I had a PSMA PET scan, a CT scan, MRI scan, all within a couple of weeks. And it was found that uh, the uh, cancer had, um, had spread to my lymph node. There was some residual cancer around where the prostate was. And uh, typically, if um, cancers uh, metastasize like they do from the prostate, it could go to the bone or the brain. In my case, it went to my left hip bone. Okay. And so you had evidence of cancer in three spots, is that correct? That's correct. So one lymph node, Yep. and then the hip, left hip, left hip bone, and then the prostate bed where the prostate was taken from. Correct. So then what was the course of treatment recommended for you? So at that stage, um, a combination of hormone therapy and radiotherapy. So I've had my hormone injection. So that was that in itself was um, quite painful. It's quite a big needle that goes into the side of your stomach and the solution that they put in there, um, I can still feel it now, there's a lump there, and that'll stay with me for a good four or five months and will slowly release over that period of time. And what date did you have that? That was, was a week ago. one week ago. One week and, ago. And the hormone is actually called androgen deprivation therapy. There's many different um, drugs. What was the one that you were given? Eligard? Eligard. It was yeah. an Eligard one. So what that does is try to suppress the testosterone. So it, testosterone is basically the fuel of prostate cancer. So in a normal healthy male, you're producing testosterone at high levels all the time. And in actual fact, we need to suppress that if you still have prostate cancer. Uh, activity, particularly after the, the surgical procedure. So the hormone therapy, however, is known to create some side effects. Have you noticed any over the last week, David? Yeah, so I'm rather flushed at the moment. So I'm, I'm actually feeling quite warm now and I have been feeling like this all day. Probably the last two or three days I've been like that. Um, and I haven't... I haven't noticed any change in my moods yet, but certainly I would say that my sexual appetite has, has sort of waned a little bit, but it's only been a week, so yeah. we'll, you know, we'll wait and see so, what's, uh, what, what's likely to occur. So from a sexual health point of view, all, and I don't, most people don't really pay that much attention to hormones, particularly men. Women seem, we all seem to be a bit more obsessed with them. But men and women have progesterone, estrogen and testosterone, but in different levels. And so unfortunately for men, they're very testosterone driven in their sexuality. And so when it reduces, they don't feel as that, they don't have that innate feeling that they want to that be drive. sexual, that drive that they used to have. And so I think... There's, I mean, it, it's so it's bad. So feeling you might ha get hot and flushed and feel like a menopausal woman. So you're probably going to sympathise with your wife for the first time ever because you'll understand what it feels like. But the other thing that I think is really important for men on that, on um, androgen deprivation, ADT therapy, is that it's the first time ever where their sexual drive hasn't been driven by something that they haven't noticed. So 
women, we get to a point in life where we have to go, "Mm, can't really be bothered, but give it a go because it's important (laughs) to my intimacy. Men never usually feel that way. Unless, ever ready, every minute, ever ready. Yeah, usually. and so I yeah. think that I always say to men on this type of therapy, it is, it's the first time ever that you have to think, can't really be bothered, but I'll enjoy it if I do it. Does yeah. that sound familiar or too early? To too say? early, really. Too early to say, but, mm. yeah, um, I'm not uh, that desire. I can just feel that it's just... Yeah. Not there at the moment, so but it's, I've got a lot of other things going on yeah. in my life as well. So, But it's important, I think, for men to think that through and go, I'm not having that, that real drive that I've had before, but I still want to be intimate with my partner and I still want to feel close and I still want to do those things. And so if you've got the amber light going, can't really be bothered, but I'll give it a go, when normally you would have been a green light, yeah, how about it? Go for it on the amber light mm. and don't wait. And I'm wondering, David, have you been given much advice out about what to expect with the hormone therapy and how long it might persist in your system with side effects? Um, well, the Allegard nurse who applied the dose, she was um, you know, very um, forthcoming with information and she said that right four or five months I will be, um, I'll be like this and, and the... the the hot flushes, maybe some mood swings, the lack of sexual appetite, those Even sorts of things. some breast tenderness, uh, potentially? No, didn't mention anything okay. around any, like, changes that might occur physically or so, but other than really the hot flushing side of it. Um, I think the other thing was that because I'm still very active as well... It's a good thing. ...that it is a good thing, but it also might counteract some of the work that the hormone uh, is doing as well and I have to be I have to be cognizant of that as well because it's there to actually suppress the you know the the growth of the cancer Mm. and so I'm also aware that I probably need to slow down a little bit to allow you know, the, the, it to do its job. To do, to do its job. There yes. is quite a lot of research, and there's EC uh, University, the Edith Cowan University are actually doing. I've got a big study running, and um, that is about sexual function being improved by exercise in these kind of situations when people are on ADT. And so, you know, exercise is advised and is good. So I agree with you. You don't want to exhaust yourself but you still want to keep exercising. And actually the body of work from ECU has been prolific. They've actually basically pioneered the whole exercise Mm. is medicine model in cancer. And we do know, just for the general listeners out there, that if you do start exercising, you know, the minimum requirement is 30 minutes a day or 150 minutes per week um, of gentle sort of moderate exercise, like walking or jogging. And maybe some swimming, but to add two or three extra more intense exercise sessions that involve a bit of resistance training. We know from um, long-term studies that in actual fact, the PSA doubling time can actually drop by as much as 70% simply by exercising at that level of um, exercise. So we're going to encourage you to keep exercising. You've just got to find that happy medium. What I'd like to know, I've just asked you a little bit about is the radiation. What's happening there with you, David? So... Mine, because I have the cancer in the lymph node and around where the prostate was. Yep, the prostate bed. And in my left hip. So 
my uh, specialist has asked me to that we will focus on the hip bone first as it's it's somewhat isolated from those um, those other parts of the body and can be attacked with uh, higher doses and more intense radiation so I'm at the moment about halfway through three weeks twice a week of sort of high intense around 20 minutes of radiation therapy on my hip and touch wood everything's clear in a week or two's time I get tested and thereafter I'll be on about a seven week course of uh, radiotherapy every day for around 10 minutes on the lymph node and the prostate bed. Correct and one of the goals is to work on the continence so if we have patients who need to have radiation therapy we want to make sure that we try and get your continence under control because we know that the tissue is going to be a little bit damaged and potentially won't have its recovery to that maximum point so it's also one of the reasons we didn't mention that this morning in our, our treatment that they'd really want to focus on your hip so that it avoids distressing the prostate bed area for your pelvic floor so how's your continence going now I mean I know it was pretty uh, tricky at the beginning but tell us a little bit about that yeah so just on your first point there my specialist also did mention that by targeting the hip bone first that'll give more time for Perfect. the continence uh, side of things to improve he was quite keen for me to be completely dry before right. uh, having uh, the uh, second lot of radiation therapy because as he said to me that you know I'm likely to go backwards and for me it's more of a mental thing yeah I'm, I'm okay with wearing the pads and doing that even though it was a bit strange to start with you know it's like as I saw a sign in the gym once you know only your girlfriend wears pads, you know. So if you're, if, you're ever, if you're ever putting the pads on the on the squat rack on the bar, you know, it's like only your girlfriend wears pads. So this sort of image stuck with stuck with me for years. I remember you know? saying that to me, and, and I'm thinking, wow. You know. We need to rewrite that sign and write only your girlfriend or patients who have had prostate removal wear pads. Wear pads yeah. So, but I'm okay with with uh, with that. And, and, and your consciousness is improving quite a lot. It, yeah. it is. I'm almost at a point now where at night I'm dry. And during the day now, I'm just wearing shields. Yep. And, yeah, I'm, I'm in a good place there. Yep. But I know that I'm about to you know, take a retrograde step and go backwards again. And, and that, that mentally doesn't feel good for me. Actually doesn't. You know, I'm, I'm, you know it's, it, it almost feels more important than actually having the radiotherapy, you know. Yeah, the, that bit yeah. just worries me more. Well, David, I'm going to share with you that there actually has been no research done in pelvic floor muscle training in radiation patients. And that's a real mystery to me because I know very few patients actually get any exposure to physiotherapy. And we're actually going to be aiming to do a study on just that. However, in my clinical anecdotal experience, we've actually found men continue to improve even, even if they do have the radiation therapy. So I think pretty much with all your activity level and the program that you're on, um, I'm actually dealing with about three patients at the moment that have actually commenced their radiotherapy treatment before they had full resolution of continence and now they're dry. What we might find though is during the radiation is you get a bit more urgency and a bit more uh, frequency which will be temporary while you're actually going through the radiation. So I, I feel that um, we're just so close to having you completely continent. And if we have to do a month or so 
extra at the end because of that little delay. But but you're, you're you know, tracking really beautifully. Mm. So I hope that offers you a little bit more uh, optimism. And from the perspective of your erectile function, you might find, and you probably will find, that your nerves won't like being zapped by the radiation. And so we might just need to... But you're really good at tweaking your medication now, so you might need to tweak that up a little bit again. And also the hormone therapy can impact yeah, it. Yeah, that definitely it, does. You have muscle fatigue built in, so that's another reason why, you know, you, you might temporarily feel like you're not as, you know, at peak position as you are now, but it should actually be restored as time goes mm. by. And well, one good news thing about the injections is that you don't need to be feeling horny or have any drive for them to work. You can be thinking about your grandmother's underpants and still get an erection with those. So doesn't... I've done that before too. Exactly. So, um, so all that... The, it wasn't the, about me at that stage. Right. It was all about her. Exactly. So. so the main point of that little ridiculous example oh is that... We, you know, we can still get this erection to work for the sake of your relationship yeah. and your intimacy, regardless of how horny you feel. So that is the good news. I think, to your point, Joe, earlier, the, the other pleasing thing for me was it, just in the last four or five days, I've just started to have some natural erections oh, at that's night. It's exciting. It yeah. is. And only partial. So that has also given me a little bit of personal hope yeah but again you know it's overshadowed at the moment by the fact that i might take a retrograde step again because mm -hmm. of the radiation therapy and the hormone therapy but um i'm optimistic that that even after all that that i will get back to where i am yeah. if, um as long as they don't cause too much damage. So what with your mental health, has have you actually talked to anyone about that? Because, you know, the Cancer Council has really great psychologists that you can access and there's all sorts of, you know, it's a really common problem post, you know, with yeah, cancer. That I, I go and see a counsellor uh, about once a fortnight. Excellent. So, um, and that's actually through Anglicare. Mm -hmm. So they've been really, really good. Yeah, um, I'm so pleased you did that because early on, especially with the COVID and the cancellation mm. of your surgery, it was it was pretty devastating at the time, wasn't it? And you were pretty low. And one day, you, I remember you walked in and I said, "How are you?" And you said, "I'm just sad. Yeah. I'm just so sad." And that almost broke my heart to mm. to hear that. But you were so proactive. You already were on to counselling. How's that helped you? Do you feel? Oh, look, it's it's sometimes good just to chat to somebody who's completely independent of everything that's going mm. on and I just encourage all men, women, children, you know, I've had to go through grief counselling uh, and uh, my, my little five-year-old grandson as well who's, was impacted by um, a death in our family not that long ago and uh, it's been very, very helpful. Yeah. So I just encourage, you know, people to... You know, to reach out and um, and 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 I think it's quite timely right now. I think tomorrow might be Are You Okay Day. Yes, it is. And so we've got September Movember 11th. and Movember coming September up 10th. very soon as well. So there's a lot of um, a lot of promotion in this area right at the moment. And but but I think it's uh, incumbent upon all of us to. Uh, you know, to, to do what we used to do many, many years ago, you know, when we'd play sport or something or, you know, we'd just 
tap up our mate. That's what we would say. We just tap, tap them up, up, you know. Yeah. We just say, "How you going?" You know. So yeah. you just tap up your mate. Mm. So, and that means that you've got their back. You're looking out for them. You're a little bit worried, but they know that there's someone there for them. So, uh, I, you know, I think that um, it, there's more awareness now than yes. there ever was. But I don't necessarily feel that people are reaching out any more than they did many years ago either. So uh, I hope they are, but uh, uh, I, yeah, I, I really encourage everybody to, um, you know, just, just to look after each other and be kind to each other. I think it's particularly hard for men because... Hard for men? Yeah. Difficult for men. I'm always using the words like hard in my talk and <laughs> stumbling over it, but, but I'm curious to see what you say because it is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month right now and... There is a whole campaign on mm. this as well. Well, I think it's really difficult for men because at home they often perceive themselves that they need to be the strong person so they don't want to burden their partner and their family with their problems. And blokes' way often of dealing with it is tap on the back, have a beer, let's do something distracting rather than talking. So I think counselling is fantastic for men because you get to go and talk about how you really feel with someone who you don't feel like you're burdening. And I, I think that... Like I often recommend counselling to all my prostate cancer patients and because I just think it's just really valuable to go and tell to someone about how you feel. Yeah, and I'd just like to add that it is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month and the, the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia currently have a program or project on called The Long Run. And The Long Run, you're asked to run, walk or cycle 72 kilometres over the month. Now, I asked the Prostate Cancer Foundation, the West Australian um fundraiser manager Joanne Jones I said what's the 72 kilometers Joe and she said it's a 72 percent increased risk of suicide for men diagnosed with prostate cancer and you know that's pretty stark mm. uh, statistic and uh, we know that already 80 percent of all suicides globally are committed by men we know that one man per minute does do this we know that eight men in Australia take their own lives every day and, uh, you know, what, you, what you're just saying, um, David, is so important and so critical. And uh, I really just want to commend you for leading and just sharing exactly how tough it's been for you. So is there anything else we haven't asked you about that you feel like you'd really like to share and talk about? Probably one of the most painful parts, and that's the cost Ah. A lot of people don't want to talk about the cost Good. or the process. Yeah, so, like so tell us about that. So let's, um, let's, let's talk about, for example, the radiation therapy. When I went to my um, uh, specialist clinic, and there are a number of these all around the country, um, private clinics, uh, my first appointment is with the accountant. <laughs> it's not with the nurse. It's with the accountant. Oh. And that takes about 30 minutes. Oh. And they offer you contracts and payment plans and all sorts. And I was actually quite shocked by this. I, I was... couldn't believe it. You told me this morning. And Melissa... I've I... never heard that. <laughs> and we're all just aghast. So, and, you know, the, the guy was, you know, he was very empathetic and he was you know, he understands that and I also understand they're running a business you know the reason why I'm going to his clinic is because 
I want my surgery done now. Mm. I don't want to wait on the public waiting list. However, um, that w- it was quite confronting. And, and when I saw the, the dollar figures, they were even more confronting. So, um, so are you prepared to share the dollar figure? Well, so for my for the hip, that's going to be around about $18,000. Oh, my God. However, one thing that most people don't know is that radiotherapy is not covered by private health funds. However, Medicare does cover around about 75 or 80%. Mm-hmm. Depends on uh, your, I, I forget what they call it now, the um, safety net, safety yep. net or where you are in, in on that. Um, so, but you still have to find the money up front. So you have to find the money up front, you pay, and then the next day, like in my case today, I was supposed to receive my refund from Medicare, which I've looked tonight and it's not in my account yet. So I hope it's there tomorrow because I paid yesterday. So they do it immediately. If you go on a payment plan, it could take up to 12 months before you get your money back from Medicare. Again, many people don't know this. So, in fact, the half an hour spent with the accountant was really enlightening for me. Mm-hmm. It was really, I'm, you know, as much as there's the pain of the, the cost and, and, and everything you've got to go through, uh, he was uh, a wealth of information and knowledge which I've shared with people like yourselves in the medical yeah. industry who didn't even know this. No, didn't. I didn't and know that. It, that's... That is the reality. So, so that means even when you eventually get your Medicare rebate, you're still four and a half thousand dollars out of pocket. On, which, the, on that front, on what just on your hip, and, and you still have to have your prostate. The bed. grand total was thirty three thousand. Thirty three grand out of pocket. No, that's oh. what I've got to find yep. in the next two weeks. So, wow. so I've got to find that money, and all up, I estimate. I'll probably be about seven or eight grand out of pocket. Now, just in case you don't know this and anybody listening doesn't know it, there is this is not ideal, but you can make a claim on your superannuation for medical purposes. Did Tour you know that? Insurance as well. And you, but did you know the, about the superannuation? So I've had clients before that have yes. had different situations yep. and there's a form that they've got me to fill out and if it's a genuine medical requirement, your superannu- you can draw back on your super for that, which obviously is not ideal, yep. but if it's the difference between life and death, it's... Yeah, it's all, again, as I said right up front in the interview, mm. you know, time is our... Yeah. You know, is one of our biggest enemies. So yeah. I, I don't, you know, if I have to find the money, I'll find the money so that I can get my treatment as soon as I possibly can. I think anybody in my situation would do the same thing. And I actually know of people who have had to mortgage their house and access their super and things like this just to pay their their, their medical bills. I'm absolutely mortified that you can pay private health your whole life and radiation isn't covered. Apparently yeah. there's some loophole. And that's what that's exactly what the accountant told me. Yeah. There's a loophole in which the private health funds, um, and I actually said to him, so why don't you help them close it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, David, you wrote to the minister, the minister's... The minister for the prime minister, Ben yes. Morton. He's my local member. He's a member for Tangney. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I wrote to him on Friday night, actually, and uh, uh, I just, I was already in bed and already asleep, and then I woke up and... Sometimes I do my best work when I'm asleep and I wake yeah, up and, I, know I, that feeling. and yeah. I write it down. So yeah. um, so I, I shot him off a bit of a letter just to uh, update him, just on, to where update him on where I'm at. And, and, and I was a bit disappointed too that 
So I had a little bit of a bent as well because I wrote to I wrote to him in the early days when my when my surgery was cancelled and and you know I, I, I took umbrage to the fact that my uh, my life or my condition was measured in numbers of gowns and masks. Mm. And that's exactly what the national cabinet decision and how they came to it was based on resources, numbers of masks, numbers of gowns and and the travesty was that, that you know, most of the hospitals were empty, and when I went back in, I was the very one of the very first patients to have their um, uh, surgery after they had um, uh, um, recommenced surgeries, and the hospital I went in was empty. Mm. It was empty, and in the first the three days I was there, there were two of us on the whole ward. Mm. So I think it was challenging. Well, I think we really need to send a shout out to other people who have had this problem with the radiation and their private health and all that, to send letters to the politicians in your area because we need mass numbers. One person complaining is not going to change. And we also know that um, we do have... Um, we're one of two countries in the whole world to have a national men's health policy. The first policy was um, designed and implemented in 2010 and there's a review on at the moment the 2020 model. I've been a little bit involved in reviewing that document but let's leave with this thought. There is no men's health minister representing men in Australia. There are men's, sorry, there are children's and women's ministers. There are prostate cancer nurses in the very few. There are breast cancer nurses everywhere. Men's health is 30 years behind women's health. And a lot of that may be the reluctance culturally of men to talk about their health issues for fear of whatever um, failure you know pride but David what you shared with us just now was the prompt really for me to invite you to come in tonight and do this podcast because it's too big a deal to have men in your situation having to scramble for $33,000 with the potential recovery you know somewhat um, over 12 months so so uh yeah, I think, I think you know, I can only commend you. We, we've got to have these conversations. So thank you. You've been great. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing. And it's wonderful. We can't thank you enough. It's my pleasure. And I hope that even just if one thing that I've said tonight makes a difference in a positive way, in whatever way, shape or form, then my time has not been wasted. Thank you. Thanks very much. for that of warm afternoons, campfires and bars, smoking bark in a cubby up a tree. Dr. Joe here. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We aim to release one podcast per fortnight, so please keep in touch so you know when new podcasts are being released. Also, be sure to check out the show notes below so that we can all keep the conversation going. my own now it fills me with pride to see him growing so fast into a man his victories become mine